Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And today we are very lucky to be joined by a man. Uh, I say we're lucky because he's possibly one of the uh, busiest uh, comedy writers or comedy drama writers in the business at the moment. He's just had one hit show, The Gold, showing on BBC One, and a new series of his lovely Scottish drama, Guilt, showing pretty much at the, uh, at the same time, well, almost sort of back to back there, really. And he's also, he's had a string of successes as a writer for TV and with novels as well, the character Bob Servant, played by Brian Cox, the nationalist, not the physicist. And it's really a pleasure to, to have him here because he's always very entertaining company. It's Neil Forsyth. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Very entertaining company is a poison chalice to give me. Just <laughs> <laughs> as a come on. Thanks for coming back because um, re- listeners might know that this podcast started some, way, some time ago and episode 98 you were kind enough to be part of this podcast when I interviewed you in front of an assembled uh, gathering of a few folks talking about Eric, Ernie and me, uh, which was your adaptation of the Eddie Braben uh, story, which, uh, which was a great, great episode. So, um, but you've been very busy since 2018 writing uh, Guilt and uh, The Gold. Uh, Dave, where are we going to start? I'd, I'd sort of quite like to go go back, if we could, go way back, because I'm not sure we sort of talked much about this. But um, uh, whenever I come across somebody who uh, I, I found out is um, from Dundee, that always reminds me of uh, my, my childhood and um, that my kind of, um, my wish that I was lived in Dundee myself because of um, DC Thompson comics. I always thought my ambition when I was about eight years old was to write for uh, the Beano or the Dandy or whatever. And uh, and I wondered if, if that kind of rich um, comic history played into anything in uh, your life, Neil? Oh, hugely. I mean, I was very aware of DC Thompson because it was right beside my school, uh, the, the, the famous DC Thompson building in the middle of Dundee. And... Um, uh, the Bar Street Kids was famously the result of a comic strip writer thinking of an idea, uh, looking out the window, bereft of thoughts, and alighting on the playground of my school. Wow! And for watching the the, the kids interacting and stroke fighting, <laughs> um, came up with the Bar Street Kids. So no, I was always very aware of DC Thompson. You know, in the dandy, it was incredible thinking that that was written in the in that building. And in fact, a few years ago, I had the huge honour of writing a Ur Willie strip for the Sunday Post. So Ur Willie, which is iconic Scottish cartoon, oh yeah, yeah, um, set in Dundee about a young boy, um, a kind of episodic storytelling that was in the Sunday Post, it still is in the Sunday Post every week. But I, I wrote a wrote a strip and I went out in the Sunday Post, so I've got that framed that- in, in my house. That must have been like sort of the equivalent of getting the freedom of the city. Yeah, it was brilliant. I, 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 I can't believe it. it's, a, it's yeah. a prized possession. Yeah, yeah. There's a point at which it feels like, I can't remember I was having a conversation about the possibility of writing something and thinking, wow, that would be almost like writing canon scripture. You know, imagine if you're a big Doctor Who fan and you're writing Doctor Who, it's just like, I can't, I'm, I could never do this. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where the, the pressure must be quite something. Yeah, but also, and also, I the first writing I did was when I was maybe twelve or thirteen for a Dundee United fanzine. And what I did a lot of the time was take comic strips and uh, tipex out the speech bubbles and write them <laughs> vaguely offensive uh, <laughs> replacement stories, um, which would potentially get me sued. But the uh, famously litigious DC Thompson. But uh, yeah, so it's an intrinsic part of my childhood, certainly. It feels like you were therefore primed to write for Viz as well, which, you know, was... I, wrote, I remember writing, sending stuff to Viz, never getting anything published. Devastating. Oh, a radio producer I worked with 20 years ago, we, we, just, we just won uh, a Sony award for a sitcom episode I'd written. But he was a few weeks later more thrilled by getting one thing published in the Profanosaurus. Yeah, <laughs> and I was just like, I cannot believe how happy you are about this. But I kind of understood it. I I, I used to read Viz at school, and I remember thinking there was one time where I I laughed so hard, and for so long I thought I might die. Oh, it was just, just <laughs> it was just it was ridiculous. So I remember my granny one Christmas. She used to get us Roy the Rovers annuals and so on. And one time. I quietly said to her, could you get me the Viz annual, Granny? And she went, all right, yeah, no problem. 
And uh, on Christmas Day, we opened it up and it was like, you know, the big pink chopper or whatever. <laughs> and my mum... Roger Melly. My mum was like, what the hell is this? And I was just... My grad's going, what's this? It's just an annual. It's just an annual. So she obviously had red. Luckily, be on the front cover. Take it to another room very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> hide it. Hide it. But what sort of stuff were you uh, watching on the TV growing up? Obviously, there was... You know, viewers in Scotland had their own stuff too, but I guess there was a, you know, there was a great big pool of stuff you were watching. Anything particularly stuck out for you? Well, quite eclectic in terms of things that have stuck in the memory. Quite a kind of eclectic mix. I I always loved watching American shows. I found them mm. so so impossibly exotic. You know, mm. Roseanne was a big thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember watching, and I remember like thinking, God, imagine living in Illinois. It was the most exciting thing, <laughs> the idea of being a small town in Illinois. And um, Cheers as well. Uh, Billy, I mean, one of the big things that really made him mark was Billy Connolly, my friends that lived up the road, Jamie and Timmy, my, and my brother Alan, I, their, their big brother had got the video of uh, Billy and Albert, Billy Connolly at the Albert Hall with a black and white suit. And I remember we just, whenever the parents went out watching that, over and over again and mm. just you know sort of pained in pain from the laughter and just the fact he was scottish and playing the you know the albert hall felt incredible you know yeah at, at time. and um and then things like uh i don't know i mean if i'm honest and i should probably say monty python but i'd say you've been framed was a, a bigger influence <laughs> i remember absolute yeah. delight and you've been framed i mean to this day there's very very little funnier than someone falling over yeah, yeah. unexpected it's, it's the great humbling thing isn't it that I'm, I'm, I learned that lesson early when I was at university writing sketches and I just knew that my friend Johnny if he walked on the stage and fell over that would be funnier than anything I could write yeah. or would ever be able to write and it's just like okay once once you've made your peace with that then you can move on but yeah there's a thing um uh People, I remember I went through a phase where people would sometimes say, oh, is there anything that you'd recommend watching? And I'd say, yeah, go on YouTube and look at the BBC sports reporter who fell in the swimming pool a few years ago. That's my big <laughs> tip. And that is genuinely a tip. It's so funny. He's interviewing some of the Olympic team and they're sitting by the pool and he steps into the pool, loses his footing and is briefly submerged in the water. And it's uh, <laughs> the best thing that was on TV that year for me. But I think um, but the, other, the other thing I remember watching the making of being a pack was our, our friends in the north, um, which is you know when I was a sort of teenager. I do remember oh, our, our friends in the south, as you would have called it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, it's um, I remember that having a big effect on me. That's more of a drama, but just that multi-strand storytelling over a long period of time. I thought I thought was brilliant. But you know, other shows, Only Fools and Horses, I certainly yeah. remember watching and enjoying. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a kind of broad mix. To be honest, I, I mean, I want I want to try and sound as eloquent as I can, but there was lots of uh, neighbours in there and such like. Oh, as well. of course, of yeah. course. But neighbours was a shared experience, wasn't it? It was sort of transcended, transcended everything. Um, oh, yeah, amazing. Uh, we used to watch it at school at lunchtime, and everyone just used to pile in and watch it. And if you didn't watch it, you were sort of slightly wandering around for twenty minutes, wondering where everybody was, or you knew where everyone <laughs> was, and it was like, yeah. So it's it it, it transcends everything. Yeah, and it's interesting because we've 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 had a few kind of um, you know com comedy writers, people who just write comedy. Uh, we've interviewed on uh, here, and 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 you know they'll they'll pick out one show and they'll say, oh, Forty Towers was this, and they'll talk for ten minutes about Forty Towers um, uh, or Red Dwarf or whatever. But um, and, uh, there's obviously there's a, like an, a, an array and, a, and then like a cross comedy and drama and Billy Connolly and all all that's feeding in and your, your DC Thompson comics and things. Um, and also, but it's interesting how from a sort of career point of view, you kind of you came sort of a little bit later to, to writing for TV, didn't you? You started with with yeah. uh, books. Um, was that was that like a conscious decision, or did you always want to write for TV? No, there's been very few conscious decisions in my <laughs> in my career path. But it was kind of, um, I think, growing up in a provincial city and in the finding myself in my early twenties, desperate to be a writer, not really sure how it works, no qualifications, working in a in a pub in Edinburgh, 
it was it was sort of levels of audacity, you know. So if I'd gone mm. straight to I'm going to write television, that would have felt so preposterous. Yeah. Um, and and same with books, to be honest. So at that time, I was like, well, maybe I can write because I always wrote for football fanzines. Then I started writing for football websites in the very early days of football websites. Then I thought, well, it's probably not impossible I could get commissioned to write one piece for a, maybe a football magazine. And that's what happened about 20 years ago now. Got my first kind of paid bit of journalism for for a football magazine. And so then I was like, well, maybe if I do, maybe I could then write match reports for the Scottish newspapers. And that's what I did next. I wrote football match reports for lower league games in Scotland. And then, you know, so it was, it was always trying to do something that might lead to something. But um, obviously, certainly the idea of ever writing television and film felt just preposterous, you know. Surprisingly yeah. uh, tricky to write um, football match reports, aren't they? I had to, yeah, I was... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I used yeah, to write the uh, for a Welsh uh, weekly newspaper that I worked on uh, as a sort of trainee journalist and um, writing about um, Pontyclean versus uh, Taff, Taff Vale in the uh, second division of the um, uh, Paul Maidley Paint Shop uh, League and, and talking to the manager afterwards and getting a comment from him and, and him sounding like a sort of cliche um, but and then having to kind of write 300 words about the game in like 40 minutes you know yeah. uh, it's, it's quite quite a thing really isn't it's, it? it's great great discipline like yeah. three i would do sorry st mirren ross county and have 300 words and you know every single word counts you've got to weigh it up do i need that word and and telling the story of something as you're watching it and then i was just you know four you had to phone in the report with 20 minutes to go and you know you'd written most of the story so if there was a last minute goal your whole the story of your article no longer made sense. You had twenty minutes to rewrite it, so it was it was brilliant. It was it really taught discipline and, and brevity. Um, yeah. And then you know I did yeah interviews and, and and feature writing. So it was it was through that magazines into magazines and then into books from there. Yeah, and it's just about exercising muscles, isn't it? I think maybe some um, people getting into this for the first time, especially if you're trying to go straight to the sitcom, which is sort of 6,000 words or 5,000 words, 30 pages. It's like, well, where do I start? What do I do? And there's that blank page. But that regular building up of that, okay, there's 300 words on this, okay, done that, chuck it away, start again. Is that? It's, it's always having to start again, isn't it? And just, uh, it's much more of a exercise rather than this kind of seeing this holy grail thing that you're about to write I think it's quite healthy to see what you're writing is actually disposable because let's be honest it probably is yeah and and tools that you learn in that as well so like with journalism I think I became very good at pitching stories you know through necessity of you know trying to earn money uh, over those years when I just worked as a freelance journalist for lots of different titles, writing lots of different things, mm. I got good at just having the attention of an editor for a short email or a quick phone call. Yeah. of trying to pitch the bones of a story and you know what I thought could be funny or interesting about mm. it. So, you know, learned definitely picked up a lot. Yeah, that's so interesting you're saying that as well because I've I've been really conscious because I'm sort of looking at you know, books about how you write novels and listening to a listening to podcasts. And Dave put me onto the Novel Marketing Podcast, which is a really good podcast about about writing novels. But also I've just started reading Save the Cat as well, because it's like, well, how do you write a movie? And both of those things are telling me stuff that you sort of know but have forgotten, which is essentially, who's this for? What's the poster? What are they getting? And it's like, so we're sort of, the temptation is always that you're starting a sitcom, you start agonizing over, agonizing over page three, four, five, how are we going to end it? What's my middle act has? It's like, what is it? What is it? And who's going to watch it? Who's going to want to watch it? Why even bother to write something that fundamentally isn't pitchable? And I've got, I've got an idea, which is a TV idea initially, but I'm down thinking maybe it is a novel and would be a good novel. But I'm just trying to think, are there any novels like this? And if there aren't, who's going to read it? Who's going to want to read it? And I think it's, I think we really do forget that importance of of just making the commissioner's life easier by giving something that they can immediately see what it is and can see that the audience can immediately see what it is. And I guess pitching stories as you've been doing as a freelance freelancer probably helped that. Did that sort of carry over into your novel writing? Um, 
if it had, they would have probably been more commercially successful. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, um, no, I my no, I don't. The, the two novels I wrote were very just you know instinctive stories. I thought it'd be fun to tell. Um, I wrote one about a medium. After I went to watch a, a famous medium at a theater in Edinburgh, and I found it so funny and um, interesting and odd. And then, you know, how does someone end up doing that job? And I wrote a book called "Let Them Come Through" about about that. And then I wrote was they with that medium were they were they a fraud or do you think they thought yeah. they weren't a fraud? Oh yeah, they were a complete fraud. It was okay. um, it was it was ridiculous. I remember uh, he, at the end, he, there was a woman in the top row in the stall in the back stalls, and he said, um, "Oh, is, is there? It was you know he was doing his is there a De- Derek David Darren? <laughs> you know, wait till the hand goes up. Oh, Darren. Yeah. Anyway." Yeah. And then we talked to this woman, and she said, oh, "I think that's my late husband." And he was going, "All oh, right, okay." And he said, oh, "I can I feel, I can feel him. Oh, I can feel." Him. And she he said these various generic statements that she sort of agreed with. And he said, "Oh, what's your name?" And she was like, "You know, Mary." And he said, oh, "Mary, I know, I know everything. I know everything about your life, Mary. I know everything about you. You're a wonderful woman." And she was going, "Thank you, thank you." From the top. And he's like, and he got to the end. He said, "Stand up, Mary. Let's everyone like." And she, no, 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 no. And he would, don't be humble, Mary. Up you get. Up you. I know everything about you. Up you get. No, no, no. And then eventually went. I'm in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, oh dear. I mean, you couldn't have written that. You couldn't have made that up better. You know, that's just wow. And, and I just and I thought that in a nutshell was what fraud this this man was claiming to know everything about this woman. But uh, but so I just found that. Um, so, so fascinating and funny. So anyway, I wrote, wrote a novel about that, and then I wrote a novel called. Sorry, right, he's still, still laughing at I'm it. He's, laughing he's loving it. it. He's loving it. Quite right. And then I wrote a novel called San Carlos, which was about um, Ibiza, where I'd gone for my whole life because my grandparents had a wee place there. So, but no, I mean, the novels I'm, I'm very proud of having done, and I think yeah. they really, really hold up. But you know, they were blinking, you miss it, and I, I just thought. You know, and also incredibly hard work. I mean, yeah. oh my God, that 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 second novel, I'd written half of it, sent it out, failed to sell it, got on with other stuff. I think it was a year later, this editor found it in this sort of slush pile and said, oh, I love this, and uh, got in touch and gave us a deal. So I couldn't sort of turn down at the time. <laughs> and Offering you literally hundreds of pounds. Well, I was okay, and it was a big yeah. good publisher. It was John just Dick- enough to make yeah, you want to exactly. finish it. Just enough, to, unable to turn down. And I, yeah. and anyway, but going back to half a novel a year later, I mean, I was like, I don't even remember what happened. I don't remember anything. <laughs> you know, that that was just murder finishing that book. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of having done them. I have no plans to <clears throat> to write another one. Put it that way. You can't afford to. I mean, mm. there's it's so oh. much work for just not enough return, is it? You've got to have a really compelling reason to want to write a novel i think yeah no i'm very grateful that it's it's both creative and financial but um because yeah. I, I want to i prefer writing television but no definitely it's almost financially crippling to think i'm going to spend 18 months writing a novel rather than television i mean that's a sort of so, side note dave is writing novels at the moment yeah, i know, and I I know tried, but, but i've tried to dave, stop him and he won't listen but yeah but dave you, you're in that whole world of the marketing and everything else i think you can make it work but you know i think you've probably got more chance of doing okay out of it than someone signing up as an unknown with a decent publisher because you know you're locked, locked into their deals and yeah. It's just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's really sad. I mean, I was, I kind of was a freelance journalist during the fag end of freelance journalism, and then I was a novelist in the fag end of a, a novelist, and so I'm very glad that I now work in television at a relatively healthy period in that medium's history. Yeah, yeah, it feels yeah. like your your memoir is going to be called the fag ends, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's interesting as well. I uh, that. Um, so, so you're kind of starting with with the novels, and I, I think that the two, the the the, the two things there. And I, I was also a freelance journalist, and so you kind of and and I think another point is that you are you know, what just off what James is saying is you aren't just uh, pitching new stuff every day. You're saying, well, actually, this is a pitch for this newspaper and it's going to be very different to the if I was pitching it to that newspaper. So you are actually doing that kind of, uh, this isn't just a, a one-size-fits-all 
the pitch like you would like you know as you should do with a sitcom you know if it's going to channel four it's going to be a different thing or if it's going to go out eight o'clock on a friday night it's going to be different to a you know sort of late thing but the the other thing as well i think like we talked about deadlines and finishing 500 word pieces and stuff but also actually finishing a novel which is um and and and, and we talk a lot about this this finishing gene being almost mm. as important as the writing gene is that something that you, that that you feel has 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 helped you a lot well yeah get get there's nothing better than finishing something um and you try and you try to quieten down the little voice that tells you well it's not really finished is it because you're going to have to do this and this and this but i think uh, no finishing something off is 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 half the half you know more than half the battle there's a lot more novels get started than finished and scripts and everything else yeah. so it's, um you can't show something someone that's not finished so i think um it's it's it, i've always been kind of um hard working which has helped mm. and and part of that is on those darker days or those difficult periods within a writing a project you just think about getting getting to the end and knowing you'll get to the end and also writing that first draft very quickly so you've kind of reached a, a false end if you like yeah and you're dealing with something as a whole um always helps yeah. what's what sort of um i mean like we've got to talk a little bit about that, but <clears throat> excuse me about those tv scripts um how, how do you what how do you uh, persuade yourself how do you force yourself to get through that first draft what are your tricks and tips and things well you know outlining i used to when i was younger i'd really resist outlining because it's such hard work and i make up all these uh incredibly complicated artistic arguments of why i shouldn't really have to do an outline mm. when it boiled down to i just didn't fancy it because it's it can be brutal and it doesn't feel like writing you know it doesn't feel like creation but the recognizing the value of an outline and um putting in the work on that and the more work i put on that the more fun it is writing the script and the better the script is because you just you just relax you know the story's there and you get to do all the good stuff of the dialogue and relationships and any little and do you do you find that improves in the writing because i think oh yeah um the out because by by the time you get to page i mean if you're writing an hour i guess by the time you get to page uh 50 you're still roughly on the outline, but you've probably added a few bits and changed a few bits. I'm just writing a scene this morning where I've just thought, I don't really know what that scene in the outline's doing. I think it'd be much better to do it here. Oh, Actually, yeah. I don't even think we need it, you know. So, yeah. but so so in a way, your draft one is already almost a draft two, isn't it? Yeah, you've got to leave yourself lots of room and have the confidence just to change things as you go and and, mm. and just no, that's not working. Yeah, chop that or move that around. I mean, yeah. I think what's interesting is I write fairly detailed outlines now for for a one-hour script <clears throat> when i put that into final draft it's probably only about 40 pages mm. and the reason is it doesn't have any of the real good character stuff that will come you know so I, the more i work in it it just grows and grows and grows because i'm adding i'm adding character you know because an outline is just really taking through the building blocks of what that character goes through over an episode it doesn't tell you how the character feels over the episode or um, you know where some of these things might drive them emotionally, and you know how that might come across in dialogue or even even a kind of story decision. So it's, um, but you know, I think that that relaxes me. You know, in terms of not being too intimidated by a story. But I, I still, you know, yeah, I, I have you have days where you think, oh god, I've not thought this out at all. And this character, I'm not even sure what this character is doing in this episode. There's no story. Like, what's going on? Yeah. And it's just just giving yourself the confidence that you'll. You'll get there, and and also, you know, I'm quite an impatient person, which is quite a disastrous trait in a writer, really. And um, but you know, giving yourself the longer term view, you're not going to fix this today. That's fine. You don't yeah. have to fix this today. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah and the out what the outline does also it gives you something to write when you don't feel like it. So I, I might yeah. do another bit later today. I don't I don't like writing in the afternoons, but at five o'clock I might just go. If I can just sort of turn that bit of the outline into a scene with people talking and the right people in the room, then when I come to it tomorrow, I've basically already started. So, you know, so it, it also just kind of gives you enough to go on when you really don't feel like you're up for it. You can just sort of get, yeah. get it in place, get, you know, you've got the scaffolding up, you know. Yeah, exactly. And you've got, and, and like you say, James, there's bits, 
you can when you're knackered but you feel you should really do some more like in the afternoons go and do a scene that's pretty much there already and mm. a scene that you're going to enjoy reading but you know you you might just do that last two or three tweaks that really takes it to another mm. level if you're knackered go and do go and read stuff that's working when you're tired that's that's <laughs> another thing i do and because you're a very know, good tip i like yeah. that yeah. i think you, you know you'll make little touches but you won't feel mm. you have to and you, you'll enjoy the process of reading it and you won't read it thinking that um the choice to become a writer was a horrific decision that's <laughs> never going to pay off and then you know take on the problems in the morning i like, i I always know what I'm going to do first the next day. For example, I, I write myself, the last thing I do at night or in the afternoon is write a note at the top of the script saying, you know, go to page 15, go to scene 10. And I make that the biggest problem I have the first thing I do the next day. The, the thing that in the afternoon you're like, oh, this is all is lost. Yeah. Doing that first thing the next morning, I find often it just it's solvable and, and solvable yeah. in quite a nice, easy way. Yeah. Um, go in there when your reserves are full in the morning, yeah. and there's no, and it's harder to procrastinate when you're giving yourself a particular job to do the next day. You know, yeah. you don't, you don't have the blank page, um, so that helps. Yeah, and also you can't write fifty five pages in one day, um, no. so but it can feel like it that you need to. So I, so I've been breaking down some stuff recently, just thinking if I write eight pages today, that's great. I feel like I, you know, and I might even write ten brilliant because i've got the outline and it's it's all fine um and then when you hit eight you just think oh brilliant i've sort of hit my target and i've actually got a bit of room to spare and i might just start the next scene mm. um so yeah the, the the enormity of what lies ahead even if you've got an outline can feel daunting so it's just like well just break it down little goals little goals it's probably in the atomic habits dave is it what what to... yeah i mean well it is but also um uh, john vorhouse in his book his little book of sitcom you know mm. he, he talks about you know be, being overwhelmed by the the the, the, the huge thing that, it, that yeah. it is and just breaking it down into little things little sections and little uh, aspects like relationship between a couple of characters say or and and, and stuff like that so um yeah I'm, i just uh, i i i have mentioned this to, to neil before but I, I do occasionally sort of teach writing and, and um i i have actually i show students now i show them the opening two minutes of uh, guilt because i think that's just the most um it's a sort of the most perfect uh, start to a to a show. It's just got that, and, and the, the 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 script as which is on uh, the writers room, the BBC writers room, as well as the when it's on iPlayer. But the, it just has uh, it, it tells us everything about the whole series mm. in that opening two minutes, and it just does it with such kind of uh, simplicity and flair, if it's possible to have those two words together uh, and I, I you know I just love the way um that you managed to d describe I, I'm trying to build to a question here but this is just basically me eulogizing I've got sorry. to yeah yeah poor guy he, he, <laughs> yeah. he, a British sorry, writer Neil, you know. can't take a compliment so let's, yeah. let's quickly move on I think well, I think the one thing I'd say with that I think the the biggest thing which is not a revelation is revealing character through action yeah. you know it's so much more powerful than uh, people yeah sitting about chatting about something and yeah. it, revealing their character like layers off an onion. You know, I just think revealing character through action, putting this extreme situation, these two people into these extreme situations, seeing them react in completely diverse ways yeah. and seeing the conflict that causes between them and knowing that because of that situation, they're going to be trapped together for a while. Yeah. That conflict is only going to grow. Um, and those diverse outlooks in life are only going to cause more problems. You know, it's it's there's a simplicity to it that yeah. in gives complicated story. Yeah. It's such a great antidote to the problem that we tend to get, which is within the first 10 pages, nothing happens and it's just people talking. And so by the end of page three, I guess, I know I've just I've just I've watched it, but I haven't I haven't read the script. But you've you know, you've got two brothers who and this isn't a spoiler because it's literally the beginning hit somebody at night. Um, and the guy's probably dead, and it's quite clear. Driving in a car, we should. Driving in a car, it's yeah. at night. <laughs> it looks like nobody's seen them, and uh, one of them who should have been driving, um, you know, he can't admit to this because otherwise he's going to lose his legal practice. The one who is driving is probably um, is driving without insurance. This is just going to go bad. No one's going to miss him. Quick, 
cover it up. I mean, I guess I've not read Crime and Punishment, but there's an element of Crime and Punishment about it, I guess. Um, did you... So it's such a great way of showing how different these two brothers are. Um, but did you did you come up with the brothers first or the situation first? How did that chicken and egg come I think into it was, being? I think it was honestly concurrent because it's interesting. I, I looked recently and found that the first one pager I wrote for a guild, uh, which was eight years ago. Whoa. Wow. And uh, it was a one page document and it had this little thing I must have grabbed online of kind of blood spattered on a on a cobbled street. And I just wrote it was just the it was just that it was the opening scene and how who these brothers were, how different they were. And that was it. So it was I that was a very organic well storytelling process, Gil, of thinking of the opening scene and that's it, and then working it out from there, really. Yeah. And it just and so we should say to the listener who might not yet know, series three is a is about to drop very very soon, isn't it? Yeah, possibly out when this is released. It goes twenty yeah. fifth uh, of April. All episodes will be on iPlayer, and it's okay. on BBC yeah. Scotland and BBC Two live transmissions. And first two series are on iPlayer as well. Yeah, I, I, I do really recommend you watch uh, watch those um, series as well because it does it it, it really gets uh it, I, I love the way we were just James and I were just talking before you came came on Neil a bit about mystery and how how you unfold um mystery in comedy drama and how how much how much stuff you can give away and uh how much you have to kind of hold back and I guess that's a kind of constant uh that was, well yeah that... just to yeah just to fill out so we did we had a, a, a Patreon masterclass about this idea that somebody had written where it wasn't quite. It was a mysterious event, and it was a there was a bizarre will stipulation thing, which it partly just made my heart sink slightly. But it was a it was a very helpful starting point for a discussion. And obviously, people get very excited about stories and mystery and murder mysteries. And the moment you start confusing your audience, they're not going to laugh very much because they're worried that they're missing what's going on. Whereas what I've noticed with Gil is that you're you're not, they're trying to cover up a secret, but we're not wondering, at least I'm not, I've only watched the first episode, but I'm not wondering what's really going on. It's more a question of, no, no, I know what's going on and they're trying to cover it up. And then you're sort of revealing more as you go. So I, I'm, maybe that's one of the ways in which, if you just sort of keep teasing the audience that all is not as it seems, then they might lean into it and enjoy it, but the, the comedy is not going to go for much. And I know guilt isn't necessary. it's not a half hour sitcom in that way it's, it's it's very much comedy drama but was that again we, we did you know you were doing that or do you stop doing that later on and it gets all very mysterious <laughs> it probably gets increasingly dramatic as, as we go but definitely humor is intrinsically part of the show yeah. throughout but i know what you mean about the twist i mean you have to be careful it's like if you keep pulling the rug on the viewer eventually he's going to refuse to stand on the rug you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. kind of got to there has to be more to it than yeah. twist, you know constant for the sake of it so it's kind of like um i, th I think the, the, the humor for me it's all about the humor never driving story you know yeah. it's i never i never do anything with story when i'm deliberately trying to set up a funny situation in itself that will yeah. play as comedic so the, the story is entirely dramatically driven um, and character driven as well yeah. because character driven and, yeah. and then you know and and that's all about that and if you have strong character you get strong story you know and 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 it, that that's that's what it's all about that's kind of where the muscles come from but then it's about for me it's humor is has it's it's reactive i think mm. within drama and that's the thing is that one of the most common ways that human beings react to pressure is humor that's what gallows humor is for example yeah. And and we need to and and dramas that don't show characters ever reacting to high octane or high pressure situations, and on occasion using humor. For me, they become they become unbelievable. Yeah, and borderline preposterous. Yeah. Um, whereas, I think for me that's that's line of duty. So line of duty is incredibly exciting, but you you get a few jokes from Hastings. But other than that, no one in no one in line of duty finds anything funny at all ever. And I just think coppers just aren't like that. Coppers find a lot of things funny. They probably shouldn't. But um, but yeah, I think this when, when there's no humor, it's like there's something missing, isn't there? Well, I think it's also like your characters. Um, 
how they kind of um, interplay with each other. So, for example, we, the heart of my show is a sibling relationship. Yeah. Now, sibling relationship without humor would look very strange, you know. And I think that that so I think there's I think there's more pressure, if you like, on guilt than there would be on some other shows to to make sure humor is a part of it because it is also a family drama. Yeah. And I think that the um the the kind of uh the, the characters that I, I've created hopefully do that. They have a very brittle relationship, the brothers, and, and there's a lot of kind of bickery within it. So I think I think that's um that's where it goes. And I just I enjoy it. You know, I, I enjoy I like, you know, when you're at the stage of reading a script that you've written for the hundredth time, you yes, you want to appreciate hopefully some nice dramatic sequences and twists and turns, but you're also looking forward to reading a line that you'd sort of forgotten about. You, th you think, oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that performed. Yeah. Well, that little moment should play really nicely. But you know, in defense of of of, of dramas, is that you, you it's it's a hard balance to to get right, and if you it's a tightrope, and if you go too far mm. towards the comedy, you really suffer dramatically. You take the viewer out of it. The, the stakes don't feel as real because the situation doesn't start to feel as real. It feels yeah. a little bit, um, uh, you know, a little bit. The dramas could start to feel forced, and it's about so often when I'm doing scripts, I'm constantly later in drafts, I'm actually taking out funnier lines. Yeah peering back the humor and thinking Look, i've already got and it's interesting brian cox um he i remember him saying to me once about um about dramas and, and humor and all that stuff and he always says one joke there should be one joke in the scene you know like there should be one funny line no more no more you know because he thinks that it's starting to he's such a dramatically focused actor he feels yeah. it's losing losing focus and i that's really stuck with me as well so i think it's it's a hard balance to get right. And I think that's the, the thing I'd say in defense of anyone doing a drama show that it's it's very hard to get that, yeah. to, to, to not go too far the other way, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Even if Brian Cox tells you that, that's going to stay with you for a long time, isn't it? That's not... Uh... Oh, Brian, told me, Brian yeah. told me to run away and join the circus. I'd be off within the hour. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, I mean, just, you know, kind of darting back and forth, of course. So, so your first... Your, your your first major TV writing gig, I guess, isn't it? Is 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 uh, Brian Cox? You know, at the at the peak of his acting career, even although you know, obviously everyone. Oh, succession! Him now. Nah, he's past it. Nah, <laughs> yeah. it's Bob Seven. I mean, everyone know, says all that. Right, the, the start of the peak of his yeah. career, I would say. But but I mean <laughs> yeah. that, that the idea. I mean, it's fantastic that you know he 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 is so good in that character yeah, i think you, you... i think it's fair to say we got brian at a low oh <laughs> right. really oh was was it... no no not at a low but when he was un unusually available put it yeah that way. yeah oh, yeah okay. no and then oh okay. absolutely yeah because he because you know he was doing like a hannibal lecter kind of thing as well at one point wasn't he oh, he's a, no he's had an amazing i mean he's he he, he was a theater actor for decades brian and yeah. an incredibly highly regarded theater actor and then he went off and had this kind of Hollywood career, which sort of gave him a lot of exposure, but I think he found very frustrating in places. And then he's done lots of, you know, great work, to different television dramas and things. But I'm, I'm so pleased that with Succession, he's had this huge sort of Indian summer of his career and this huge mm. level of international recognition for being without any shadow of a doubt one of the best actors of his of his generation. He's, he's superb. So it's, mm. uh, it's great. He's had, a, he's had a fantastic career. Yeah, uh, and what what was your relationship with him then? As a, you know, given it, they, it, yeah, you know. remains so. You know, I see a lot of him when he's around in London. He's a lovely man, incredibly supportive to me. You know, one of the various people that undoubtedly I owe my career to, and, and um, he was, uh, yeah, he was great. You know, I mean, he's from Dundee as well, so we we kind of, um, you know, yeah. he was he was a someone growing up where growing up in a provincial pre-internet city um doing anything creative felt so impossible but the fact that there was this up uh, this dundonian that had gone on to have this yeah. at the time hollywood career you know a guy that grew up in brown constable street next to orca park and dundee it seems mad so so no i, I still kind of pinch myself that i, I kind of got to work yeah. with brian and then um, He's uh, he's brilliant. He's a, yeah, great guy. And there he is in the Born Supremacy in two thousand and four. Um, that's that's the one movie I can't ever turn off. If I have if it's on TV 
when I'm about to turn the TV off and go to bed, I find it almost impossible to turn off that movie and not watch it all the way to the end. It's flipping well, incredible. I, I'm very surprised that neither of you have mentioned his role in um, in a famous American sitcom. Do you know about this? Go on. Go on. He was Daphne's dad in Frasier. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you're the first person to mention Frasier in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, I don't know if anyone had that one, uh, but uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I had. I, if if I if I had remembered that, I certainly have forgotten it since. Uh, but well, yeah, I can tell I? you, I can tell you, Daphne's brothers were Robbie Coltrane and Richard E. Grant, uh, yeah. so uh, which makes yeah. no sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'd forgotten that, Dad. Yeah. Yeah, and wasn't there a brother as well? Oh no, not a brother, but there wasn't there the guy who brought the chair in in episode one took the chair out in the very okay. final. It was the same actor who, oh, wow. who, who did That's that. Amazing. He was another English actor, I think. But yeah. um, gosh, I'll have to check that out because I don't, I, I, I can't remember the the particular episode, but that must have been something that, that I registered. But uh, wow. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking because that's your, I guess this is your first big break on TV and, and yeah. uh, it's, it's such a it's such a character that is about the writing. Um, I'm just interested because a lot of people when they get their first TV writing job, um, hands up, are a intimidated by being the, the the new kid on the block, and b are kind of you know kept kept at arm's length and just don't have anything to do with it. But but I, I imagine you must you must have been kind of involved in the making of the TV show in some way beyond the Yeah, writing. well, it, it, it come from books and then radio, um, yeah. Bob Servant. So it was a sort of long-standing character. Um, yeah, I wrote these um, kind of little humour books around Bob Servant. Uh, Owen Bell at BBC Scotland Comedy um, got hold of one of them, got in touch. We did it for radio. Brian very kindly came and did it. And it was... Um, it was a BBC Scotland lunchtime radio 15-minute series. It, that then got repeated on Radio 4, and then we adapted it for television. So because it had been sort of a, this natural progression, mm. sort of in with the bricks, I suppose. And so I probably had a bit more involvement than most first-time writers would have done on a television set. And and I had the relationship with Brian as well, I suppose. But, you know, it was it was amazing. It was magical. You know, we filmed that in my hometown of Dundee. It was, I stayed at my parents and then walked around to Bob Servant's house in the morning. <laughs> I must have felt incredible. But, it's, but I love how it started with a, look, BBC Scotland, you know, essentially local radio 15-minute slot. Um, I know it's not local because it's national and it's Scotland is a nation. Um, but, yeah, and it's like that's where things begin you know and I, and I think sometimes we we're so enamored by by Netflix and Apple TV or whatever we just think well how do I get my show onto there or there it's like yeah. just do small stuff and see what happens and oh yeah it's fantastic BBC Scotland I was I've just come back from Scotland from the publicity and the launch of, of Guilt 3 and you know I was chatting to the, some of the BBC Scotland people and I think that and I really enjoy the BBC Scotland channel I think they do and it's difficult because you know, there's the small budgets for for stuff that's produced for these things, and so I understand production companies sort of tearing their hair out. But at the same time, I think, well, no one else would make this. No one mm. else, if they, no one, this wouldn't be happening otherwise. You know, and I do think that the what they have done, and it's certainly in my case, was sort of nurture, nurture me and give give me an opportunity yeah. that kind of led to something else. So it was, um, it was great. You know, Bob Seven. It was, it was. You know, it's it's a bit rough and ready in places. It's the first thing I've written, and um, but I, there's brilliant performances in there. The stuff that I really like, and it was just a an amazing experience that I learned a huge amount from. Um, but yes, I mean, it's and also there's nothing, as you know, there's nothing more magical than that first thing you make because you're just mm. like, I cannot believe this is happening. But yeah. I can't believe these cameras are real. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is going to go on television. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I wrote a thing on a piece of paper and now they've got to film it. It's like, <laughs> oh, my words, you know, the the power of words. It's, it's incredible. And Bob's still, and, and Bob is still with us, isn't he, on uh, Twitter? Well, I've been meaning to delete that for about five years, but I, uh, I can't <laughs> Not managed to persuade myself to do so. So no, you never know. Always at, some point, at some point, he'll make a dignified retirement from public life. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We should probably talk about um, the gold mm. uh, yeah. because um, time is marching on, and mm. I'd love to know uh, how that 
came about. Um, and the thing that struck me is that it's a really, I mean, brave implies, I'm now thinking it's, I'm, I'm damning it with faint praise, but I love the fact that you're not in the slightest bit interested in the heist. It's all about the aftermath. It's all about what the hell do we do with all this gold? Um, so, you know, at what, at what point did you, was that always the starting point? Or, you know, say a bit about how yeah. that show came into being. Well, that's the kind of microcosm, microcosm of it, really, James, because um, I, uh, years ago I spoke to people who had initially looked at it as a film and were considering it for television, and, you know, that was far more interesting to me. And then it just, as always with these things, a very convoluted development process over various years and the project bouncing about various people, and then I managed to sort of get it back to a degree. Where, when did it start? Where, so where, what's your um, first document? Time probably five years before the show went out you know okay. so and then there's definitely a couple of years when it was dead you know and then i did a reworking of it and sent it to the bbc and we just timed our run very well i think and when we pitched it to the bbc so but no i was always largely uninterested in the heist and you know what came next it, it's an incredible story i mean it's it's so unusual to be pitched a true story that has got the legs for a proper television yeah. series, particularly one with a bit of pace where you're just burning through story. I get pitched loads and loads of things that are true stories, and I think, well, this could maybe be a film, but, I mean, how is this six episodes of television, particularly six BBC hours? Um, so I was I was really attracted to the, the density of the story the people involved, how it went right across society, how it went over a long period of time and went off into these bizarre tangents. Um, so I just thought it was brilliant. I thought it said a lot about the country at the time. It said a lot about class and social mobility or the fact, the kind of seductiveness and fallacy of social mobility, if you like, um, mm. in the 1980s. And it, and it just being a, a, an entertaining story. I mean, that's the thing. I think I do... It's, it's interesting to write things that have themes within it and maybe touching on areas of kind of societal interest. But I think you have to be so careful to not forget that your your chief job is to write something that's sh shamelessly entertaining. Yeah. You know, and people want to watch at that inherent basic level of being gripped by something and carried along by it. And that's yeah. that's what the gold gives. It's it's yeah. I was very, very fortunate to yeah. to be able to work with such a great, great story in itself. Yeah, these things can easily collapse under their own weight of, I mean, of, of gold, but of, um, of detail. Because it, the, the more you read, in a way, the the, the less you know. And actually, you know, yeah. there's it's it's really I've got a bit of experience of adapting something recently, and it's just I find myself putting in detail and then just deleting it, just thinking no one cares. Yeah, no one cares. Thing. It doesn't matter. Um, it's like, oh, there were nine of them. You know, the character says there are nine. It's just like, it doesn't matter. We're probably only going to see four of them. And they've got 45 seconds of screen time. Who cares? But you've got to balance that with your own conscience about basically flat out lying or libeling yeah. people or whatever. Um, you know, obviously, I'd imagine you had a few long dark nights of the soul on one or two of those. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of legal and editorial policy part was um i wouldn't characterize as fun but it definitely uh you know it was it was challenging but it was you know i understand everyone's doing their jobs and trying to protect you and, and well-intentioned but you know and, and sometimes you know sometimes finding creative solutions for these things are can be quite productive but you know, a lot of the creative license was just how can i tell this more concisely so it would be co compositing three characters into one for yeah. example um, or just, you know, putting together two things that actually chronologically happened a little bit apart into one event. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of just trying to clean up the story. Real life is messy. That's the thing. That's what you discover when you try and tell a story like this. It's, it's messy and unbelievable and often doesn't make sense. People people make bizarre out-of-character decisions. And, yes, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but this isn't consistent with character. Yeah. It's what they did. It's yeah, it's great. Did. So, 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 yeah. There was a lot of that, just trying to, just trying to clean it up, and then, and then, you know, because it is, we were protected by the fact that it's, you know, inspired by. It's not a document, yeah. mm. and you know, so dialogue. You're still, you're still creating dialogue. You, no one's telling you what they said at mm. that day to anyone, and mm. relationships, and sometimes bits of backstory if it's people that are not known much about. So, 
it's you still feel you still feel mm -hmm. creatively um freedom to, to you still feel you're writing a story and coming up with a story but you have these lovely building blocks of reality yeah yeah i, I had a just just a little experience that 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 slightly uh, illustrates that i that i was writing a thing um that that's based very specifically on an incident in my own life is when I was a journalist reporting at this local paper about the Falklands War, and I wrote I I, I fictionalised the whole story of it, but 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 I, I kept the essence of it. Um, but there was like one little section that I kept was that that was actually a, a, an actual conversation that happened. I I thought it was necessary for the story to have this, and. It's incredible the number of people that I showed this to, and they said, "I really like this. This is really good." The one bit that just doesn't ring true is that phone conversation, and I said, "That that, that is the one bit in the story that is actually true." Verbatim. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's. I mean, it was. I was really pleased actually to hear that yeah. because I just thought, "Oh, right, I've managed to fictionalise the story apart, and, and the bit that I didn't fictionalise." No one's interested anyway. It jars. Yeah. yeah. The fiction tells a, a better, tr well, not a better truth, but a greater truth. Yeah. I think a, a more universal truth than the the true story. It, it did for me in that particular case. But mm. yeah. So so um, I mean I don't know if uh, that that that's. Um, have you, beyond now you've we have we've had guilt and we've had um, the gold and um presumably no more shows beginning with g at this point i guess but um have yeah. you are, are there any further uh shows um things what, what, uh, that you're able to tell us about that are anything uh, sort of coming up well I, I wrote a film i wrote a biopic of samuel beckett that was filmed last year in um, oh wow and that's coming out in autumn i believe uh which is a uh, it was directed by James Marsh, who won the Oscar for Man and Wire. Gabriel Byrne, he's Gabriel Byrne plays Samuel Beckett. Whoa, um, that's amazing! I, again, I mean, films. I'm just in awe of anybody and any writer who can put up with trying to make a film because it sounds like the, the the beauty of TV is they have to show stuff. Um, they, they they have a budget and they have to spend it. They have to commission it because they got to show stuff. Whereas every film has to really speak itself into existence doesn't it i mean or yeah. but although was this brought to you or how did that one come no, about? no this was um so i wrote uh i wrote a few of the urban myths for sky arts a few years ago and one of them i wrote was about samuel beckett so it was quite uh as film developments go it, well it was a long period of not much happening and a lot of uncertainty but it felt relatively real because sky movies um, Sky Art Stroke Sky Movies were sort of involved in the development. I mean, my point was, I, I was sort of saying to people, look, you know, there's never been a Samuel Beckett biopic and that got them kind of interested. And then, so the script was commissioned, which I wrote, and then it sort of, nothing happened. There was a period of inertia and then James Marsh, the director, came aboard. And, you know, direct, it's really interesting. I mean, direct film is obviously a director's medium. It's mm. as simple as that. And then that's that's the nature of it. I mean, I had probably about as positive an experience as you can have as a writer on a film. And even then, I'm not not necessarily in a rush to write another film. I'm much more, I'm much more interested in television because I yeah. like having, you know, a level of creative oversight over the project, yeah. and I like um, I like being on the set a lot and and you know in the edits and things like that. That's how I like making television. I think I'm I think I'm decent at it because of the experience I've got. And it doesn't exist. That job doesn't exist in film for the writer. So it's um, yeah. um, it's just the way that historically the film industry has developed. It, 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 it so, and that's I mean, and so with the Beckett film, I mean, I was making Gold anyway, but I kind of I remember saying to James quite early on, "Look, I understand how film works. You know, this is this is this will be your your project." And I just wanted it to get made, you know, because yeah. I think we put a lot of work, we put a lot of work into it and. Yeah. Um, I thought it'd be a lot of fun, um, and so they went, you know, very much. And he was he was really collegiate and kind and respectful, and um, you know, I've got the sole writing credit and, and all that stuff, and, and he and I chipped in on edits and, and stuff. But it's it's so different to television; it really mm. is. Uh, the writer's job is just it's night and day, and then it's mirrored by the director's job. You know, directing in television is very different to yeah. to directing film. 
Yes, no, you're, in, even, in British, even in the UK, even more so in the US, as a director, you are handed a script and told, direct that. Um, and um, we start in three weeks. Uh, so here are your cast. You know, also like, we've got four more people to cast, so you can come in on those. It's a, it's a tough job, isn't it, that director job for television? Because you're, you're moving a lot of traffic around, aren't you, very quickly. Yeah, I don't think directors get the recognition they deserve in television, and I don't think. No, they... no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. I'm very happy for writers <laughs> yeah, to get that. The... Was a, that was an observation rather than <laughs> suggesting any sort of change to the system. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but equally, I, certainly in film, it's laughable um, how little yeah. credit writers get, and directors are seen as this all-seeing eye that come in and sort of yeah. simultaneously save a project and get it made and all that stuff. It's it's mm. it's barmy. I mean, I find that credit in films a John Smith film or whatever it is at the beginning mm. with the director's name in, just so ludicrous I can't get my head around it it's like me putting a Neil Forsyth television programme at the start of anything I make it's, it's Although, so, if you think uh, of the, the team effort made to, to make anything it's it's just so daft yeah, yeah. it is it is changing a little bit i would say i think about writers who i started out with writing sort of one-line gags on weekending or just sort of writing jokes for johnny vaughan on the big breakfast people who are now kind of their, their title is showrunner for instance someone like uh, jesse armstrong for example who to me was always just a writer but has, is obviously you know a writer and uh, and is dealing with the directors and the casting and, and that. I yeah. mean, did you have a lot of the say in the gold? With the yeah, record? I mean, I, I had a showrunner contractual clause in the gold, um, right. partly because it's a partly American uh, project. But I think I think what I've realised with a bit more experience is everyone, you need to let everyone do their jobs yeah. and recognise the conversations that you should certainly be part of, but the conversations you don't necessarily have to be part of. And also you can't do everything. It's just not the time. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think if you get to um, a level of experience and sort of attainment in terms of make, making television, you as the creator's voice, there's very few creative situations where your voice should not, you know, is, is yeah. you'd be in that, in, in a junior role in that discussion it doesn't it, there's no logic to that you know the, um very you know technical areas of direction and stuff i mean that's barm bar me if you start getting involved in that yeah, but yeah. um things like casting and the edit and even locations you know things the key locations and, and everything else of course you should be across that i mean it's 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 yeah. crazy i think in, yeah i, I the, think there's always that the, the producer's always worried that the that the writer is going to make everything take longer. Whereas actually it's like, well, this writer has been thinking about this on and off for probably three to seven years. And so they might save you time because they might be able to explain why this character probably needs to be that or that. Or if you're going to cast someone who is completely the opposite, that's fine, but that will completely change the chemistry with these other two people. And therefore we need to maybe think about casting someone different in those and rewriting episode three. So, you know what I mean? It's like, it, so I, th I think there's a bit of a lack of trust and maybe writers are our own worst enemy and we have a reputation for agonising over things. And Although that isn't my experience of, of other writers particularly. But and no, also, I, yeah, if, if, if a line's yeah. not working on set, it's like, why should anyone else come up with another line? It's not fair to ask the director or the actor to come up with a better line. I mean, it's... Well, I don't yeah, think it's why would... I mean, that's... No, I mean, that sends a shiver down my spine. You shouldn't... That shouldn't be a situation. I think writers can be... You know, I think it's... I still think there's a little bit of um, a feudal aspect in British television where mm. there's an idea of keeping the writers slightly in their place, often to let other people have a greater creative role, you know. And I think the um, I think it's counterproductive. I think you know there's always there's the there's the basic thing of being polite and positive and collegiate and everything else, yeah. and, and always coming at it from a creative point of view rather than some sort of egotistical part of you being annoyed that you're not involved. It has to be more like look, I think. I think I should be part of that conversation, you know, and I think mm. that, um, you know, and problem solving as well. That's the other thing. I think the writer is getting the writer involved in problem solving in the production can be really, really helpful because yeah. they're the ones that have the whole story in their heads. So, you know, yeah. there's a problem with the location and everyone's battling over this, but have you asked the writer? Because he might say, well, do you know what? I don't think we actually need that location because what yeah. about the episode four location? 
you know, they, I think, yeah, I think yeah. we're having we're having problems finding a brewery to fill in. <laughs> oh, sorry, it doesn't need to be a brewery. Um, uh, just um, like a bo bottle factory, uh, yeah. milk factory, whatever. Oh, oh, okay. It's like oh, well, you know, if, yeah. if you've if you just having them, just having them in there as part of the team, along with yeah, you know, the absolute vital role. The producer, you know, good producers are just so invaluable to a project mm. in in every way. You know, just getting the thing over the line and being collegiate and helping the the writer. Mm. You know, it's but I always think it's the it's the the, the big thing is recognizing that um, and I this is I'm saying this partly from a producerial point of view because I've got a label now and I work with other writers and the thing is the thing is it's the writer's vision the show and the producer's job is to help achieve the writer's vision and the mm. right it's not the writer's job to help achieve the producer's vision <laughs> I think that is often a problem genuinely yeah. I think there's often this producer the producer has a vision of the show in their head and the kind of show they want to make and they think it should be and that becomes sort of overriding in their interactions with the writer. And it's not, you've got to step back and think, well, it's your show. You know, and when I, mm -hmm. if I give notes through through my production label to a writer, they're always given with the caveat, like take as many or as little as these as you want. It's your show. Yeah. Because I also recognize how hard it is to get a show made. And it's still, uh, you know, more of a chance the show's not going to get made yeah. than made. But I want the writer if it's not, if it doesn't get made, I want the writer to go away proud of the script that they wrote yeah. and be gutted that it didn't get made yeah. and think, oh, that's such a shame, but you never know what could happen with this script. But also I became a better writer from writing the script. I feel like I've really yeah. started to understand my voice better. My next script will be even better and it will go, it will help their career yeah. because otherwise they could be in the situation where, where I've been in in the past, where by the, by the end of the development process, I'm like, I hope this show doesn't get picked up. Yeah. I don't want to write this. I wouldn't fucking watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no as i often say on this podcast failure is almost certain so for heaven's sake fail on your own terms uh well, don't fail on anybody else's or yeah. fa fail better as uh yeah. Sam samuel beckett yeah, and take something from it. Take, take take a nice experience from the process you yeah. know and feel that you've worked with decent people and you've yeah. you've been kind of trusted and you, you, there's a way to there's a way as a writer to write a script that doesn't go to series but at the end of that process you feel more confident in yourself as a writer yeah rather you know which is which is kind of perverse because it's ended with failure but actually you feel you find out a lot about yourself and you felt you've been supported by the producer and everything else yeah. or there's many ways that that call to say the show's not getting picked up is a sort of knife in the back for your confidence yeah. in terms of maybe I shouldn't be doing this at all. And I think that's what can happen when a show is overnoted um, yeah. along the way. And that takes us back to the beginning where it's a question of just being really clear in your head about what the actual show is. You know, what, what are you pitching? And if you don't have that, then you won't be able to withstand this sort of absolute battery of, of notes and um, uh, uh, sort of, could it be more this? Could it be more this? Actually, we were thinking of it more as a drama than a comedy. And, you know, and it'll be it'll be produced and noted to death unless you know the yeah, point you, at which it no longer becomes the show that you set out to do. Absolutely. I think the best answer, if I give a note, so if I'm producing on, on a script and, and I give a note, the best answer to that note is the writer saying, I'm actually not going to take that note. Here's why. And giving a confident reason of why the note doesn't apply. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Because yeah. then you think, oh, they know they know the kind of show they want. They know exactly what they're doing here. They know their vision of the mm. show. And it might not get picked up, and it might not be exactly the version of this idea that I would do as a writer, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they, they're confident and clear in what they want to do. And so you just got, you've got to back them on that front, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that like was, go on. I was going to say that was going to be my next uh, question. What was was going to be so? What advice would you give to to um, new writers? Uh, I, I think you've kind of given a very eloquent uh, sort of explanation there of how how new writers should approach their own work and and how they should approach um, what other people say about it yeah well write something you want to write i mean i've got a thing in my office that says do you want to write this and that's because i kept you know over the years getting sucked into usually through financial necessity or whatever into developments that i sort of later regretted a bit and it's because at the time i didn't necessarily really 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 want to write something but it was paid work or whatever you know that kind of 
thing. And I just think, especially if you're sitting down and writing something on spec, why would you do something that you don't particularly want to write? But I do think a lot of people do because they think this is the kind of thing that might get made or yeah. I've read somewhere that this is the sort of thing people are looking for. Mm. You know, write something that you really, really want to write and, and you're going to enjoy the process. I think that that is, seems incredibly simplistic and possibly is, but that would probably be my kind of... Yeah. And the fact, I think that's another thing that come, brings us right back to the beginning as well, because, you know, your first big TV success, that, as you say, was literally filmed next door to your, your house. Almost. So, so, you know, who, who, would, who would think that a, like, a provincial uh, show set in Dundee would talk beyond, uh, be, way beyond that? And again, coming back to Billy Connolly, you know, Billy Connolly's stories are so, they're so kind of, uh niche and they're so ab mm. about people who are very not known really anywhere else but the way that he brings those little uh scenes in the workplace to life of a bloke with a fag hanging out as he's talking yeah. or that that just, those little things those are the they're, they're universal aren't they really those tiny local things i mm. think yeah yeah, absolutely. Write something that's just distinct, you know, distinctive. Yeah. But hopefully, apply, you know, and like guilt's gone out all around the world. It's just been remade in India. You know, it's barmy. Wow. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it has that universal thing, isn't it? Yeah. Two brothers, and they've done something bad, and they're trying to cover it up, and go. You know, it's that kind <laughs> of you know unravel from there. So I think that's so you can be universal, you can be specific, but I think that's a great note. Do I want to write this? Yeah. I think is a really is a really good one as opposed to is this the kind of thing that will get me work and one understands the temptation and one can speak about the luxury of you know well you know you shouldn't go after the money which is fine to say if you've got money um but uh, I think ultimately you're shortchanging yourself and you're setting yourself up for a fall if you. Just... Well, you've got more chance of the money if you do that because you're yeah. writing something that's real and, and genuine. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's that thing of I think it's a slight defeatist thing, which is is borne out by statistics. But this idea, you'll never get rich being a writer. Well, you'll never get rich if you're being a writer to get rich. But if you're being yeah. a writer because you love writing, yeah. you never know what can happen in your life. You know, so yeah. I think that's the, you know, that's there the we thing. go. Right that is an inspiring ending on which to end. Uh, right. I mean, we're not promising people we'll get rich, uh, yeah. but, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll we'll put a heavenly choir in the background. To that's that. exactly, that's yeah, 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 yeah. That's brilliant, Neil. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time. It's, it's really, really uh, illuminating. Great yeah. stuff. Well, nice to see you again. All the best. Great. Thank yeah. you, and thanks Cheers. very much, everyone, for listening. And we'll speak to you next time. Cheerio. Thank you.